slavery is back. Welcome to a place where private business profit from a captive labour force, yet pennies are spent on medical services to a population in which the Indigenous, the poor and the mentally ill are overrepresented. Where isolation, humiliation and degradation are facts of life. Welcome to prison. It depends who's telling the story, I suppose. The prisoners would have one view. The people who work in the prison system would have another. And I think it's up to people to decide uh, you know, where, where the truth is. Give government propaganda and the media spin doctors the flick. And check out Doin' Time for news, views and tunes on prison issues from Guantanamo Bay to Christmas Island to prisons and detention centres everywhere. Every Monday at 4pm on your community radio, 3CR. We are still fired up and we're still talking about revolution. Hello and welcome to the Doing Time Show. This is 3CR Community Radio, 855am on the dial, streaming live on www.3cr.org.au. This is Marissa and I'll be taking you through until 5 o'clock this evening. On today's show, we'll be speaking firstly with Alice Drury, who is the Senior Lawyer with the Human Rights Law Centre. And we'll be speaking with Alice about the latest media releases, released, or one of the latest media releases from the Human Rights Law Centre, looking at the fact that charities have lodged urgent requests for UN intervention to prevent attack on advocacy. The Doing Time show has not only had a long-standing tradition with interviewing prisoners that lived ex- about their lived experience, but we also interview people that have, and communities that have been deprived of a voice. And this is going to be such a show. And then after that, after Alice, we'll be speaking with Samantha Connor from People with Disability Australia, and we'll be speaking with her about a media release entitled Advocate Calls for People with Disability to Have Vaccine Choice. And we'll be speaking with her not only about the coronavirus vaccine, but also looking at some of the disturbing disturbing issues that have emerged in regards to lack of access for people with disability. So coming up, for, first of all, we'll, we'll speak with Alice very shortly, but before we do just wanted to give a little bit of an intro. So basically 12 charities, including First Nations, religious and human rights groups, have written to three UN special repertoires requesting urgent intervention to stop new rules being proposed by the Morrison government, which could shut charities down for speaking out. And the UN petition is being made on the basis that the new rules would breach the rights to freedom of expression and assembly, which are protected under international human rights law. So we'll be speaking with Alice in just one moment, but right now we'll leave you with a quick community services announcement. More than 70 innocent refugees are still being indefinitely detained in detention centres and secure hotels around Australia. Over recent months, many fellow detainees have been released onto bridging visas. Those remaining are desperate to know why they are still held. It is indefinite, it is cruel, and it is unlawful. Every day, a group of supporters protests this brutality outside the Park Hotel at 701 Swanson Street, Melbourne, where 11 men remain trapped and whose hopes are fading. 
and whose mental health is declining. The aim of the protests is to raise awareness of the situation for the general public, but also to show support and solidarity to the men inside. It is also for the approximately 200 refugees still held offshore. Please come along any weeknight at 6pm or weekend at 3pm. And you've just in, tuned into the Doing Time show 3CR. And on the line, we've got Alice Drury from the Human Rights Law Centre. Hello, Alice. Welcome to the program. Thanks, Chris. Good to be here. It's lovely to have you. Now, I just was just having a look at the media release, and there's a really excellent quote from you. And I was wondering, it talks about you were mentioning the rules would silence charities at a time when their advocacy is more crucial than ever. Could you just um, introduce yourself and then talk about what's going on with, with all this? Yeah, sure. So at the Human Rights Law Centre, I work on in a, in a space that we call democratic freedoms, um, which is unfortunately often trying to um, stop the government from introducing pretty bad laws that are pretty undemocratic. Um, and it's been a fairly busy space the last few years. Uh, and this is one of those laws. Um, and, you know, it's been a really tough couple of years um, for Australians. We've faced unprecedented crises from the pandemic to bushfires, to floods, you know, economic recession. And charities have been on the front line supporting Australian communities through these crises. Um, in this moment, the Morrison government should really be supporting charities and welcoming our advocacy, not threatening us with rules that could shut us down for speaking out. So basically, these proposed laws have nothing to do with democracy. Can you just talk a little bit about some examples of charities and what they could do wrong, supposedly do wrong to be closed down? We firmly believe that these regulations will be very undemocratic um, and really troubling. And effectively, what they do is say to charities, if you commit a really minor offence, um, in particular in relation to peaceful protests, then we might effectively shut your entire charity down. Um, and that includes, you know, if a staff member uh, decides to go to a peaceful, you know, march, it could be, you know, March for Justice or um, an Invasion Day rally or, you know, just like I heard um, just now, like your ad for a peaceful protest uh, against, um, you know, indefinite detention for refugees and asylum seekers in Australia. Um, if, you're, if your staff member uh, blocks a footpath, um, then that's enough to actually deregister a charity under these regulations. I hope that doesn't go through, Alice. That's actually quite concerning. It's concerning, and we're really worried. The whole sector is really worried. Um, we've got you know, well over 50, 60 charities calling on the government not to introduce these regulations. It doesn't need to. Um, there's no there's no problem that it's really trying to fix. The ACNC, the Charities Commissioner himself, admitted in Parliament that there's no widespread problem that these regulations are trying to address. Um, so it's, it, it's a major concern and really unnecessary. So what is the Morrison government's rationale for, for putting in these new rules, do you think? Um, is following through on a promise that it made um, after animal rights protesters 
blocked traffic in you know Melbourne CBD, um, and some of them um, you know went to farms and other places. But I understand there was factory farming to protest. Um, and so the Morrison government is sort of responding to that, to those series of protests by saying, if you're a charity and you engage in any conduct like this or in any way support conduct like this, then you should be deregistered. Um, so it's sort of... It, the Morrison government believes that it's following through on that promise. We think that the whole premise of that promise is, is wrong and baseless. Um, but not only that, it's actually capturing almost all of Australia's 59,000 charities um, with, this, with this one regulation to capture... Um, and when has this been debated? Sorry? When would this be debated? Uh, so this is a regulation, not a law, not a okay. piece of legislation. So it will go through Parliament in a very different way. It, in fact, doesn't need to be debated. Um, and effectively, it just needs to be introduced, which we expect it will be in the first week of August. And then the government just has to sit pretty for 15 sitting days um, before it will become law automatically. Um, so unfortunately, it puts us in a bit of a trickier position because we have to find people to vote against it rather than requiring the government to get the votes to vote for it as if it was a piece of legislation. Is that not setting a very, very dangerous precedent that laws can just be rushed through like this? It is a dangerous precedent. Um, it also follows on some dangerous precedent that we're seeing in terms of quite an anti-democratic trend, um, certainly by the federal government. And, yeah, the, the consultation process with charities was, was really flawed. Um, the latest sort of permutation of this regulation wasn't shared with anyone, as far as we know. certainly wasn't made public, um, for consultation, it was just announced and sort of sprung on us. Uh, you know, to get into the really wonky detail, um, you know, we know that 65 charities made submissions, um, you know, uniformly against these regulations, and Treasury hasn't even published those submissions. Um, so there's not even that kind of public scrutiny that that has been given to these to these regulations. So how can that be allowed? Concerns. Um, that these regulations could be unlawful. Under our constitution, we have the implied freedom of political communication, which is just a fancy way of sort of saying we have a right to communicate about public, um, you know, matters of public importance and politics. But it could be that these regulations are uh, conflict with the constitution on that basis. Um, but you know, we would much rather these regulations not be passed so that we don't have to take them to the High Court. It's very much our preference. I imagine if these laws are passed that they, this will be taken to the High Court? We'll exploring avenues um, to challenge them. I'm sure many of our charity partners um, will be similarly looking into it. These are really, really very, very dangerous times, Alice. Yeah, you know, because I work across not just this issue, but you know, whistleblower law reform and um, protest rights generally. Um, you know, things like freedom of information laws. We're we're seeing the systematic decline in our democratic rights in Australia. And when do you think that started? I think it 
probably just a good question. Um, I mean, these things are never linear, um, but I certainly think the Howard era wasn't great era for transparency and, and democratic freedoms and also just kind of attitudes to civil society. Um, and it was during the Howard era that we saw the sort of first curtailment of charities' ability to advocate on their issues. Howard certainly, um, you know, attempted to undermine charity advocacy in that way and we, we saw a continuation of that trend um, under Turnbull, under Abbott, uh, and now we're seeing it under Morrison. Well, it's about time that the Liberals were voted out then. We would very much welcome any government that did not, um, yeah, commit these sustained attacks against charities. Whilst the pandemic is, is real and we need to ensure that the coronavirus doesn't spread, would you say that the health orders emerging from the pandemic have, have had a decline of of people's rights? We believe that the health orders um, in, in every state and federally need to comply with human rights. That means that they need to be necessary, they need to be proportionate, uh, and at times that does include restrictions on the right to protest in the case of you know, a pandemic, a, a public health crisis like we're seeing now. Um, that's why at the Human Rights Law Centre we strongly back a charter of human rights like we had in Victoria, we, we believe we need a charter at national level because that gives guiding principles to governments to make sure they don't act um, disproportionately um, to curtail people's rights. Alice, thank you so much um, for that. You sound a bit faint. Are you able to just try and speak up a little bit? Sorry about oh, that. Thank you, pardon. Is that better? Yeah, that's much right. better. Thank you. You sound great. So what about moving on now, and, and I know you're, you're not representing an Aboriginal organisation, but nevertheless, I really would like to, to ask you a, question, a general question in regards to these proposed changes to charity regulations. How would that jeopardise Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander communities' self-determination? Um, and it's a, I've spoken to Aboriginal community-controlled organisations um, like VALS, the Victorian Aboriginal Legal Service, um, and they're really worried that this will hinder the ability of, of charities like VALS to support incredibly important movements for First Nations justice like Black, you know, Black Lives Matter um, or stopping the removal of Aboriginal children from their parents, you know, grandmothers against removals. Um, so, yeah, I, I think this is a really significant um, risk to the ability of grassroots movements like the First Nations Justice um, to, to protest but also to, to get their demands met to be heard. Absolutely. And it's it, it really is most concerning of us. I'm just having a look here at the... So many people have contributed to the media release um, from the Human Rights Law Centre. And isn't it interesting, Executive Director of Anglicare makes a really great quote here. Charity is not just about helping people in poverty. It's about creating a country where poverty doesn't exist. This government, I think, would like charities to stick to planting trees and handing out blankets 
that we shouldn't be asking, you know, why the bushfires are raging and why people are homeless. Um, they want us to sort of keep our mouths shut and just do the service delivery. And I think that's what Casey Chambers, the Executive Director of Anglicare, is speaking to. Absolutely. I mean, how many times do we hear Scott Morrison saying that climate change doesn't exist? Climate change isn't real. We're not even involved in the in the nuclear the anti nuclear treaty. Things that Australia could be doing much better, and we need civil society to be strong to be putting pressure on our government to do better on many many issues. How do you think that the new rules would affect prisoners? In particular, and this is not my area of expertise, but I certainly okay. have, um, you know, concerns for the, you know, really important movement of stopping Aboriginal deaths in custody. Um, things as well like raising the age of criminal responsibility from 10 to 14 across the country. Um, you know, these these campaigns are meaningful and powerful because they have grassroots support. Um, and what these regulations do is undermine the ability of charities to support grassroots movements um, and to really advocate robustly for the reforms that Australia needs for prisoners. So what can the community do to stop these laws from coming through? So um, what we're asking people to do is to write to your MP to see if you can get a meeting with them, um, particularly if, you've, if you live in an electorate with a Liberal or National member. Um, it's really, really important. You know, write letters to the editor from your local paper is also fantastic. Um, we need to bring this to the attention of everyone in the government so that Scott Morrison understands that this is not a popular move. Um, and, yeah, I think... So there's, there's a, we've got a fact sheet up on our website to help people do that, um, to both get across the issue and, and communicate about it um, and really strongly support your listeners to, um, to, to do that. Absolutely. And can you just read out the, the website of the Human Rights Law Centre there? Yeah. The Human Rights Law Centre's website is hrlc.org.au. Um, but probably the easiest thing to do is just to type in ACNC, uh, HRLC um, fact sheet, and then that comes up pretty quickly. So it's HRLC, ACNC fact sheet. And I'm hoping that we can call on the Australian government to refrain from introducing the regulation, the regulations into Parliament. Um, in terms of just a final question, the charities that would really like these rules would really have extraordinary powers, wouldn't they, to shut down a charity if the commissioner believes it's likely that a minor offence may occur in the future. Can you explain that? Yeah, absolutely. The rules are so broadly drafted um, that they can... They, they give the powers to the Commissioner to deregister a charity even if no-one has broken the law. Um, that includes preemptive powers. So the Commissioner can say, you know, like you said, the Commissioner can say, I'm going to deregister this charity. Look, they haven't broken the law, but I believe they're likely to in the future. 
It's, it's pretty extraordinary. And it's worth noting as well, like no political party, no business is um, exposed to, to this kind of arbitrary treatment. Uh, it's really charities that have been singled out for this, this punitive response. It's extremely punitive. So, so basically you can go and hand out ham sandwiches and, you know, and, and do little things, but you can't actually, you know, give an opinion or protest. To give an example, you know, a charity might want to support the Invasion Day rally that yeah. is happening on the 26th of January. They might want to give their staff, um, you know, a couple of hours off um, and to allow them to march. If the Invasion Day rally isn't authorised by police, then technically a lot of the actions, like blocking traffic, you know, walking down the road, might be unlawful. The police don't treat it as unlawful. The police aren't going to arrest anyone. There's, you know, long-standing um, sort of understanding that the police won't do that. Nonetheless, the charity that's allowed their staff um, to attend uh, could be deregistered. Even worse than that, if the charity tweets about the you know, Invasion Day rally, um, then that could be enough to see it deregistered. Oh, my God, this sounds terrible, Alice. It's, it's, so it's very far-reaching. It's, it's extremely far-reaching. I mean, it's, it's, it's in breach of international law. It's in breach of our right to freedom of expression, you know, freedom of assembly. It has absolutely no place in a democratic country um, and we, we really need the government to, to refrain from passing it. Would that include community radio stations as well? Yeah, I do. Um, particularly those with charitable status, which I understand is some of them. Um, and, yeah, you know, airing... airing uh, an sort of ad or a public, public notice about... Um, where a protest is taking place could be enough to see the radio station deregistered. Goodness. No, no, this cannot go. Come on, listeners, start getting onto the website and the Human Rights Law Centre having a look at the fact sheets and start, please start writing letters to the editor in the papers and we, we need to um, get going here and stop these laws from getting in. Alice, thank you so much for coming onto the program. Really appreciate your time. Thank you. Thanks a lot. Take care of yourself. You too. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. You're listening to 3CR 855 AM, the voice of the community. 3CR, community radio, giving the voice to the community since 1976. Female-identifying artists aged 18 to 35 are invited to enter the Ellen Jose Art Award, a $15,000 non-acquisitive award. Ellen Jose was a pioneer in Australia's urban Indigenous art movement and a radical activist and social justice campaigner. The award is given in the hope that it will support the winning artist's continued development by providing recognition as well as a financial boost. All six finalists will receive an artist fee and have the opportunity for their work to be professionally presented in an exhibition with an accompanying publication. The award is a partnership between the Ellen Jose Memorial Foundation and Bayside City Council. Entries are now open and close on Friday the 27th of August. Head to bayside.vic.gov.au and search for the Ellen Jose Art Award for all the details. A 3CR supporter. Love comes your way What can I say You 
The new Climate Action Radio Show will surprise you. Well, first of all, I'm not a believer in global warming. I'm not a believer in man-made global warming. Global warming. And so you'll hear voices from all around Australia and overseas that are taking all types of climate action, whether it's stopping coal and gas, whether it's building a new model of society, or whether it's just sustaining you in the grief you may feel about the climate destruction we're facing. And in that spirit, here's a poem by Rumi. Stop, take a breath, for you are drunk, and we are at the edge of the roof. This is coal. Don't be afraid. Don't be scared. It's coal. It's coal. It's coal. Tune in every Monday at 5pm to hear the Climate Action Radio Show. We've got a common enemy. The same government that locks up these refugees just behind us here at the Park Hotel is the same government that's going for our rights, trying to attack the very limited gains that casuals have. And so when union activists take up the cause of refugees amongst their fellow workers, it's not an act of charity. It's about building workers' united self-defence mechanism, understanding that we're all part of the same battle. Subscribe to 3CR in 2021. Feed Radical Radio. Subscribe today. Go to 3cr.org.au forward slash subscribe or call the station on Questions, is there something here that's missing? Have I got any of these answers in my head? Ooh, sometimes I don't know what I'm searching for. Ooh, got my back up against the wall. Ooh, I gotta be careful, cause I might fall. Ooh, I know there's something. Something here that's missing Something here that's missing Even on the sunniest, brightest days I wake up and it's hard to find my way Guess the days it never turns out to be Then through the rains, the ups and downs I gotta keep myself from my grounds only gotta be true to this one person that's me. Ooh, sometimes I don't know what I'm searching for. Ooh, got my back up against the wall. Ooh, I gotta be careful, cause I might fall. Ooh, I know there's something, something here that's missing. 
Voices on air. Subscribe now. Go to 3cr.org.au forward slash subscribe or call the station on 9419 8377. And this is 3CR Community Radio, 855 AM on the dial, streaming live on www.3cr.org.au. And this is the Doing Time Show. And coming up on the show next is. Samantha Connor, who is the President of People with Disability Australia, and we're going to be speaking with her in regards to the vaccine choices and the fact that people with disabilities are not getting that choice. Hello, Samantha. Welcome to the program. Hello. Thanks for having me. It's lovely to have you. Now, this is a very, very disturbing thing, isn't it, when people with disability are not getting the choices in terms of the COVID vaccine. Could you just talk a little bit about what's going on? Absolutely. So the issue with, um, you know, with people being put in the 1A and 1B rollout is not because people were old. There were two reasons that people were prioritised. One was that um, they had conditions, which medical conditions, which would cause them to be more at risk of having bad outcomes and dying of COVID. And the other thing is that they tended to live in congregate settings. So 
when you live in a place that's essentially the non-floating ruby princess, then you're highly vulnerable because you have shared care. So in recognition of those things, people who lived in residential disability um, accommodation and people in aged care accommodation um, were prioritised in the 1A rollout. Unfortunately, um, health and disability are very separate from each other and they haven't realised that people with disability tend not to live in 100-bed wards anymore, you know, because um, if you're 17, you, you are entitled to live a usual life. But sometimes people live in smaller institutionalised settings. And so they just didn't vaccinate a whole bunch of people until we started shouting. And consequently, um, while we're opening this up to children... Um, Adults with disability in those um, residential aged care in those residential settings have been left behind. Indeed, and, and I believe that um, some residents and workers at a disability group home caught the virus. Yeah, that's right. And so I think this is a six-bed um, home. So there were a group of residents. Most people haven't. I think there was something like nine percent last time I looked at the numbers, which was a few weeks ago. Um, had been fully vaccinated out of the whole of that cohort in 1A and nothing, no, we need group B, 1B. Um, so, yeah, so the fact that they caught it isn't surprising. Um, our concern is, you know, making sure that people are unvaccinated now as a matter of priority and that we get people's choice of vaccine out to them because a lot of disabled people can't take um, one vaccine or the other. So they need to be prioritised in giving those vaccines as a um, priority to make sure that the most um, clinically vulnerable people are safe. So people with disability are not getting the, the choice of what vaccine to take? No, look, they did raise the age limit, um, but there are people who have been told that they can't take AstraZeneca for one reason or another. And then, of course, you have vaccine hesitancy um, because in the same way that we have with the rest of the population. Um, but some people haven't been able to get one or the other because of the region that they live in. So I know people who are in group homes in Newcastle and in South Wales um, who can't get vaccinated at all. Um, so there are areas and pockets of areas in Australia where people, of course, people live all over Australia where they can't get access to any vaccine at all. Samantha, so this is indeed a mess, isn't it? It really is. Um, look, it, I think the issue for us is when we're talking about opening up, um, you know... People are saying we need to have a minimum number of people vaccinated, but absolutely we need to make sure that all of the people who are clinically at risk, so people who are in the 1A and 1B um, rollout, need to all be vaccinated. As many people who are entitled to be vaccinated need to be vaccinated before we have any discussion about rolling out and also to, you know, distributing vaccines out to the rest of the population. I mean, Victoria is in a lockdown at the moment and also New South Wales and and South Australia, and they're saying, well, you know, we're going to be having more lockdowns unless you get vaccinated. But what about what about critical disability groups? They're not getting that. Absolutely, and you also need to remember that, you know, for a lot of people with disabilities, they've essentially been locked down since the beginning of last year. Um, that includes in, in their own homes, you know, so a lot of people are terrified of catching a virus or, you know, will be at risk if they're in, in an area right now. Um, some people just haven't left their homes. And some people are forcibly not allowed to leave their homes because of the, they're living in an institution and there's a duty of care to staff and to other residents. So they're not allowed to leave, they're not allowed to go to work, to go to do, you know, activities, that kind of thing. And so, um, you know, so people aren't able to live their lives at the moment. So they have, 
more and DSM restrictions than other people do um, in the community. So it's really unfair. This is not really discussed in the mainstream media, is it, that people with disability are simply not being given priority? No, look, and this is why we put out a segregation statement, you know, sort of late last year for the Disability Royal Commission because um, part of part of how the NDIS came about was that people with disabilities are quite often shut in, shut out, shut up, you know. But being shut into institutions means that we're not seen, not heard. And so those sort of issues just don't come out into, um, into mainstream discussion. So um, for people who are living in group homes, for example... Um, it, it didn't surprise me at all that health really didn't have an understanding of how and where people with disabilities lived. Um, there's been quite a bit of confusion, and I think it's just to do with the silos under which those policy areas operate. But I think now is a good time to change that and make sure that we've got some consistency between our, our different human services area and health and, and disability and make sure that um, people who need the most help at a time of crisis are the ones that get the most help. Absolutely. And in fact, is it fair to say that quite often disability is also equated with being old, like being elderly, that, you know, there, there are people with disability at all ages? Yeah, there is. And, you know, that's quite... I, I'm, well, I'm 53, 53, I had to think about it, 53. <laughs> and um, so, you know, I'm a manual wheelchair user um, and the person who just... I have, um, I have lingered on muscular dystrophy, which puts me into the category of people who die back at COVID. So it's kind of yeah. one of those things where it's a really unusual circumstance. But when you're listening to people who are sort of saying, well, you know, it's only 3% of the population, I can tell you what, when people are talking like that and you're one of the 3% of the population, it becomes a hell of a lot more important, especially if it's, if it's your, you know, 10-year-old child with Down syndrome, for example, who's not going to be able to be vaccinated and three times as likely to die or, you know. So there's there's some really big issues around this that people aren't talking about. And, you know, we don't believe that um, older, older Australians are of less value because of their age. Um, yeah, but... You know, we're, we are actually talking about children and we're talking about um, clinically vulnerable adults as well. Are you able to comment briefly just on how, in, how you would see the plight of people with disability who are, who are in prison? There's a really, really high percentage of people with disability in prison. Um, look, I think it's um, a massive issue, especially for First Nations people. Um, you know, almost half of, um, it's between 40 and 60% is the anecdotal amount of, of people with disability who um, are First Nations as well and so and have chronic health conditions as well. And so when you add chronic health conditions on the top of it, you add diabetes, you add, um, you know, obesity, people who are amputees, people who have heart and um, cardiorespiratory conditions. Um, we've got a really high number of Aboriginal people in Western Australia, so they're highly, highly, highly susceptible to um, COVID. I think pe what people aren't understanding is that um, we're talking about congregate environments and institutionalised settings, and so, and we're also talking about points of transmission. So that means any place where you have a big number of people who've got a person, you know, they're sharing people going from person to person, means that they can, you know, that person can effectively become typhoid Mary, and that goes for people who have shared support workers in the community and a highly casualised workforce as well. Insecure work. Yeah, it's um, 
I think it's going to be a um, a really really tricky um, thing to navigate if if um, the protest on Saturday has a bad outcome. I think. Wait, what was that? The what was on Saturday? Oh, uh, the um, protests um, over the weekend. You know, so it's oh yes, yes, the, yes. Sorry, yeah. yes, yeah, the protests just happened on Saturday. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So yeah, Samantha, I hope I didn't put you on the spot there by asking you about about prisons, but I I just felt like that was really important to mention especially in particular with First Nations people. Yeah, absolutely. And, and you know, this goes for hospitals. Um, there's also the issue of um, psychiatric facilities. So I have a yes. friend at the moment who's in a psychiatric facility and who is a highly, highly vulnerable um, person with a disability who um, has been vaccinated now but is still fairly terrified. Um, and so there are anti-vaxxer nurses in, in the mental health facility in a public hospital. So you can imagine what that feels like when you're really concerned about where that person might have been in one of those big capital cities. Um, you know, and what does that look like? You know, we really need to make sure that people are safe and that people, um, you know, people take this seriously. I do worry about vaccines not reaching, um, psych, you know, mental health facilities and prisons. Yeah, absolutely. Well, I'm surprised if they haven't had a, you know, targeted vaccine rollout. The issue is that we don't actually have really much information about what their definition of a, a congregate environment is. I know that they're using the, um, the, you know, sort of national vaccine register and they're also using NDIS data, but they're not necessarily capturing all of the places that people with disability live and also other vulnerable yeah. people live. So... Um, there's boarding houses, for example. There's a boarding house list on um, on um, the internet now, which is after years and years of work for New South Wales. And so people live quite often in places where they're um, living, in, you know, below the poverty line. They usually don't have access to a great deal of information as well. And um, I would be very, very surprised to find out that they've been um, granted access to vaccines or would even consider themselves to be part of the 1B rollout. And while we're on the topic of information, Samantha, it's interesting how Prime Minister Scott Morrison um, speaks about risk profiles of getting COVID and it's shifted in recent times and, and he's, there's different messaging about the vaccine. Can you comment on that? Well, about different vaccines, sorry. As far as my personal opinion, <laughs> not, not great at the moment. But, um, look, I think... We would encourage government to do everything that they can to instil confidence and trust in people, and that means communication that's clear and transparent. That means being accountable. And um, you know, I don't want to do the Saint Mark or Saint Dan line because you know I don't think anybody is a saint, but I do think that the kind of no bullshit line that both of those men have had as premiers, and you know, when people say, you know, what about this, and they say, look, I just don't know. You know, because it is an emergency. People don't know. And I think people are a lot more receptive to that than they are to spin. You know, I think people are a lot more receptive to truth, even when it's not the truth they want to hear, you know, because then we've got somewhere that we know that we're not floundering and confused and in chaos and we've got a little bit of, um, of trust in, in government to do the right thing. So, yeah, so I think that is something that maybe could be worked on and um, making sure that people start to get, you know, this is the way forward for us is to have a vaccinated nation of people who um, trust, you know, trust science, trust medicine and trust our government in the end. 
The problem is that it's not trans the government isn't being transparent. And my concern is, and, and this is just a quote from the media release, which I agree with, that some people with disability prefer Pfizer as an option, regardless of their age, but others younger than 60 want AstraZeneca. Mm, absolutely. And look, one of my, um, myself and uh, the previous president of PWDA, or the one before last, both had the same conversation with our doctors. We said, you know, would would you be vaccinated if, if you were I? And both of our doctors said, hell no, we wouldn't, you know. And so this was right at the start of, you know, we're both sort of between that horrible age of 50 to 60. And um, so there was a choice of having Pfizer or having nothing, and we couldn't get Pfizer. So there was this thing of, OK, well, what, what does this look like? Do you just stay home for the rest of your life? That's not going to work. Um, so, you know, there are some really big concerns. I know I know people who have had really good um, discussions with doctors and have still had a slight adverse reaction, but it's very, very, very minimal. I do think that people with disability are more likely to experience an adverse reaction for some conditions, and they've um, been talked about a fair bit, but there aren't any discrete studies about vaccine reactions and disabled people. So really, it's just down to local and good um, medical advice. Absolutely, absolutely. And I believe that urgent discussions are taking place at the moment um, between members of the disability community about state-based decision-making not to provide AstraZeneca in community clinics. Mm, yeah, is that right? It's, it's well. Some of the states have made that decision about not making it available. Obviously, because the risk profile has changed and probably will change in the light of um, potential, you know, widespread um, issues around um, the protests on the weekend um, and lots of people being in the same area with no masks, etc. Um, hopefully, that isn't the case. But you know. This is this is what changes the risk profile, you know, when you have people potentially being super spreaders. So, so for um, we really want to make sure that people have got access to either vaccine, and that that includes whatever age group that they're in, you know, if they're under the age of. And so, you know, they need to be able to have the best quality advice that they can be given, um, and they need to have. Um, I do know that there's a free um, line item for, for advice from Medicare. Um, that people with disability can access now. So you can go to your doctor and find out, you know, right. more about um, whether it's safe or not. But really encouraging people to, you know, to go and get vaccinated as a matter of urgency, especially if you're in Sydney or Melbourne. Samantha, yeah, thank you so much for coming off the program. Just finally, so the Delta variant of COVID-19 is really a massive threat to the disability community, isn't it? Yeah. And it, it'll be fair to say that they should be able to look at their risk of catching the virus and judge whether they want to wait for the vaccine recommended for them or go with one more readily available. Is that right? Yeah, look, I think we should be... We should make sure that people who are the most at risk are given most access to the vaccine, and that means that people first who have got um, conditions that are going to make them more clinically vulnerable, people who are in congregate settings, which are going to make the... And people who are in receipt of care, where they've got a shared worker who goes from person to person. So they're the people who are the most, most at risk. And, look, I think we, if we say we're going to prioritise people, we don't talk about stages and then start opening doors into another stage before we've completed the first one. The idea of a stage is that you roll out the stage and you finish it. So... 
you know, get on with it, make sure that the people who we know are going to die as a result of this are going to be protected, and then we go on from there. And also having the government not having so much mixed messaging as well. Absolutely. And just some transparency and accountability. I think, you know, I'm, I think everybody's really open to saying, look, we've never done this before. Um, this is a bit of a screw-up. We've yeah. tried really hard. Um, we really want to talk to you and get some expert advice. You know, our phone lines are open for anybody in, um, you know, Sydney or Melbourne who needs some help around this. If you're a person with a disability and you or a PWDA member, um, you know, you want to get, you want to speak to someone about it, then, you know, give, the, give them the officer ring or the disability gateway ring. There's a COVID line. You know, there's a lot of places it can go to, but also um, government and advisors if they need help with this stuff. Um, this is what, you know, the disability community does and knows, and um, we can help them get it right. Samantha, thank you so much for coming onto the program. Are there any final comments that you that you wanted to make in case anybody with people with disability in particular are listening? Yeah, I just want to I just want to say we recognise that this is a really tough time with um, the NDIS going badly, with people not having access to PPE, with their support being cut back as well. You know, so this is a really, really tricky time for people with disability. And so um, just to be hardened by the fact that we have an enormous community of people who are fighting really hard and the fight to make sure that people with disability are safe in the middle of the pandemic is um, one of the first most priorities for all of us. Thanks so much for your time, Samantha. I've been trying to chase you up for a long time and it really is a pleasure to have you on the show. Thanks so much, Marissa. Take care. Take care. You're listening to 3CR Community Radio 855 AM on digital and online. 3CR Radical Radio. An important message from the Victorian Government. To stop the spread of coronavirus, anyone who has recently been to a red zone is required to go straight home and quarantine for 14 days. You must get a test within 72 hours of arriving home and again on day 13 of quarantine. For the latest updates or for more information on zones, go to coronavirus.vic.gov.au. Authorised by the Victorian Government, Melbourne. A 3CR supporter. A message from Victoria's community sector. I'm looking forward to not worrying that my patients are going to die of COVID. To no one else being separated from their mum in aged care. I'm looking forward to our wedding and having our family and friends from overseas here with us. I really want to see my mum. I'm looking forward to being able to welcome guests without a mask on. To having all the sports back to normal so that my family members can come and watch me play. I look forward to performing in front of a big crowd again. So please, get vaccinated. Please get vaccinated. Please get vaccinated. Let's get back to the good things. I ask you to get vaccinated. For all of us. Please get vaccinated. A message from Victoria's community sector. A 3CR supporter. And you're back with the Doing Time show. Just wanted... We've got about 10 minutes left um, of, our, of the show and I've just received an email... And it's a, I just wanted to read out a quick article and the source is NITV and this is really interesting. It's about the protest, the anti-lockdown process over the weekend and how it's compared in some ways to 
um, Aboriginal protesters and Black Lives Matter. So I'll just read it out. False comparison between anti-lockdown protests and BLM, Women's March, called out. Unmasked protesters marched down George Street in Sydney, Australia. Anti-lockdown and anti-vaccination activists gathered in cities across Australia at the weekend. And I'm just having a numerous, so here we go, numerous users have reiterated that Black Lives Matter and women's marches were non-violent and organisers for those events enforced strict COVID-19 safety protocols. And this was by the NITV staff writer. Over the weekend, several capital cities around the country saw thousands defying lockdown restrictions to march against government measures to contain the latest outbreaks of COVID-19. The protests turned violent with marches accosting police and one man charged with committing an act of animal cruelty after vision surfaced of him making contact with a police horse. So basically it's showing a protester who tries to push away a police horse in Sydney on July 24th, 2021, as thousands of people gathered to demonstrate against the city's month-long stay-at-home orders. A protest... Sorry... I'm just following the protest. Former ABC journalist Emma Alarisi was pulled up after she compared them to Black Lives Matter and women's marches. While many expressed anger and frustration at the gatherings, Alarisi took to Twitter to draw a parallel between the confrontations and previous marches. Everyone, including police, was attacked at the Black Lives Matter protest and the Women's March. Why is it more outrageous this time, she asked. Don't be left or right, just be consistent. The comparison drew swift condemnation and repudiation from social media users. Miss Alarisi then followed her tweet up with a second saying, attacked doesn't have to be violence. Words can wound people too. Think before you troll. Many users in the replies identified that they had themselves attended both of the marches, Ms Alarisi referenced, and reiterated there was never any violence seen. The official account of the Sydney Morning Herald's photographic team even responded. We had several photographers at the Black Lives Matter march and it was a very peaceful protest. Apparently it was like being at church exemplary in making an, a, a point without the use of fire eaters and boxing moves, it said. There are fears that the coming days and weeks will prove the weekend's protests as super-spreading events. There were similar concerns last year, but given the strict safety measures that organisers of Black Lives Matter protests implemented, that didn't eventuate. On Sunday, New South Wales Police commit Commissioner Mick Fuller described the organisers as anarchists who, unlike Black Lives Matter protesters, took to the streets in June last year, did not formally register their rally. There are no organisers that we can take to the Supreme Court to stop the process happening, which means that they're a bunch of anarchists, he said. Crime Stoppers New South Wales has received more than 10,000 tips helping police identify more than 200 people who attended and a strike force is analysing footage from social media, CCTV and police-worn body cameras to identify the culprits. 
Meanwhile, Victoria's Assistant Commissioner, Luke Cornelius, rejected suggestions police acted hypocritically in comparison to the Black Lives Matter marches in 2020. Yesterday was very different, he said. Where we can identify these people, we will knock on the door, ask them to explain themselves, and if they were there protesting, we will issue them with a fine. Authorities have warned anyone planning to organise or attend a second anti-lockdown protest that they will be arrested. Community leaders, leaders urge Western Sydney to get vaccinated as COVID-19 spreads. Health professionals say confusion and misinformation are to blame for the widespread, the widespread protest. So there's quite a few issues there, and I just wanted to read that out because given the earlier interview that I did with Alice Drury from the Human Rights Law Centre, there are quite a few laws coming in, or hopefully not coming in. Um, the Morrison government wants to deregister charities. Please... Um, write letters to the editor and start um, doing some work, if you can, listeners, in regards to trying to stop that. 3CR is a charity as well. Um, by the way, Anarchist is, is, um, is about voluntary cooperation. It's not about violence. So I thought I'd mention that too. Um, we're nearing the end of our show. Um, just wanted to read out that article because the Black Lives Matters protests were very, very safe. So tune in every Monday from 4 to 5 for the Doin' Time Show and we'll be going out with our theme song Black Fella, White Fella from the Rumpy Band and stay tuned for Climate Action Show next. Thank you. Take care.
You've been listening to a 3CR podcast produced in the studios of independent community radio station 3CR in Melbourne, Australia. For more information, go to allthews.3cr.org.au.